Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 274, and we are recording on March 23rd. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Amanda Nelson. We are coming to you from Book Riot, and it is officially spring. Woo! I'm so excited. (laughs) All I have is sounds. Yeah. That's it. I don't know if... This is actually interesting to anybody but me and Amanda, but I was texting Amanda about my my spring equinox tarot Mm -hmm. card pull, which was very, which was like sort of grisly and sort of happy, which kind of sums up the state of the world right now. Mm -hmm. So I did one too for the spring equinox and it was very like, shut up, you know, know? (laughs) like whatever, like there was a lot of like. Keep your options open in it romantically, which I'm not going to do. And like sit <laughs> sit down and don't rush into things. Look. Oh, your favorite advice, Amanda. <laughs> COVID is ending. I am going to wild out and you cannot stop me. Cardboard card thing. <laughs> I mean, I'll think about it anyway. <laughs> well, that's where we're at. Uh-huh. Uh- <laughs> So let's see. What is this show actually about, you might be wondering. It is about books, we swear. Uh, we This is a reading recommendation show where y'all send in your reading recommendation requests, and we will do our best to find you your great next read. You can send those requests in either via email to getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can drop them in the form that is at the bottom of the show notes on the site on bookriot.com. And yeah, it can be for you. It can be for your book club. It can be for a friend or family member or whatever. And if you need a response back by a certain date, you're hoping to hear back by, you know, a birthday or whatever, put the date that you are hoping to hear back by all caps, either the subject line of the email or the first line of the form. And we will do our best. If we're not going to get to it on the air and we still want to answer it, we might shoot you an email. So keep an eye out for those. And we have a bunch of feedback today. Andy is recommending for books like Survivor, The Last One by Alexandra Oliva. The premise is a reality TV show set in the woods, and it is Survivor Gone Extra. Christy has suggestions for books on nature that are thoughtful slash spiritual for Emily. The Outermost House by Henry Beston is a book about living on the outer beach at Cape Cod in the 1920s. Mm. So waves, tides, birds, lighthouse keepers. It's lovely. That does sound (laughs) lovely. And The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard is a meditation on life and nature focusing on one small rural area in Virginia written in the 1970s. Dillard is a force of nature herself. She makes the everyday profound. I would like to co-sign that Pilgrim at Tinker Creek recommendation. Annie Dillard is amazing. And then Rebecca writes in with uh, recommendations for the person wanting books set in Australia with Beth O'Leary vibes. The Best Kind of Beautiful by Frances Whiting is set in Sydney at the end of 1999. It's quite gentle with a bit of romance and some family stuff centered around the main character's family. Think Partridge Family, Music Group, and now Deceased Father. Adorable. (laughs) All right. Thanks, y'all. Those are great recommendations, it seems like. So I am going to read our first question, and then we will do our first sponsor, and we'll get with the recommending. 
So our first question is from a lonely nonfiction friend. Aww. And they say, my friends are beginning a book club, and they don't read that much nonfiction, which means that they will choose a lot of fiction picks. I like fiction, but their taste in fiction usually differ drastically from mine. I'm the only person in the group who reads nonfiction constantly, so I will be the one picking our nonfiction reads. We've decided we will do two fiction picks, and then I will have one nonfiction pick, and the pattern will repeat. I'm trying to find short, easy-to-read, not-depressing nonfiction. I'm actually trying to pick at least one book that relates to each of our interests, so we all get some background information on what we like. I'm having trouble finding these two picks, so if you can help me, that would be great. One friend is getting her PhD in English with a focus on Victorian literature. I'd really like a rec on Victorian culture slash society. The other friend I need a rec for has degrees in sign language studies and TESOL, which is teaching English as a second language, I believe, and loves linguistics. Any recommendations related to those two topics would be greatly appreciated. All right, let us take our sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. So we broke up this question. Mm -hmm. Amanda, mm -hmm. whose wheelhouse is Victorian literature, <laughs> took the Victorian literature question. Mm -hmm. Amanda, what do you have? Okay, I picked Too Much, How Victorian Constraints Still Bind Women Today by Rachel Verona Coate, who I'm going to disclose was a friend of mine in high school. 
the book is still great. Being a friend of mine does not make you a bad writer, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) So this, I think, is so perfect. It's a little bit longer than 300 pages. It's like 350. But you're not going to find anything about Victorian literature that is less than 300 pages because, the you know, Victorians can't write like 800 800 page tomes. Anyway, this is perfect because Rachel was studying to get a PhD in English with a focus on Victorian literature. And then she left that program to write this book. And this book is about how in Victorian literature and Victorian society in general, women were so constrained in their behavior. You know, there there was this obsession with like hysteria and the location of every woman's uterus and like couldn't you couldn't laugh too loudly or eat too with too much gusto or really show any kind of over the top emotional, physical, spiritual, anything ever. And the author's thesis here is that those constraints have stuck with us in modern society. And there are, they've just morphed into maybe less explicit constraints, but they're still very much there. And uh, you can see them on social media, you can see them in the books that we're reading now. And she makes all of these points by extrapolating stories from Victorian literature, like the first chapter is about Jane Eyre, and then bringing in pop culture and stories from her own life. So there's like, you know, you're going to hear about Jane Eyre and Lana Del Rey in like one book, which, you know, if (laughs) if you're looking for something for a book club, a, a book that's just like literary criticism of Victorian literature can be very dry and boring and whatever, but something that combines all of those things together, feminism, you know, a modern woman's lived experience, pop culture references, everybody's going to get. And then also the topic that you're interested in, the Victorians. I think this is a really great pick for that. So that's Too Much by Rachel Verona Cote. Yeah, I also did not pick a book under 300 pages. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But the thing I will say to you is that many nonfiction books have dozens of pages of like end notes and Mm -hmm. footnotes or bibliography at the end. So it's actually less pages than it looks like. And I think that y'all will really enjoy. I'm excited about this pick. It's Because Internet by Gretchen McCullough. The uh, subtitle is Understanding the New Rules of Language. And I'm reading this now. Thanks to this question. I was aware of it already. It is a delight (laughs) because McCullough is, you know, of the generation that has grown up with the internet. And she's also a linguist. So she's writing about how not only how the internet has changed the way we use words, which I think is obvious to anybody who spends any amount of time on the internet, but also how it has changed how linguistics study how we use words, Mm. which is fascinating. It is so interesting. I'm like a couple of chapters in and she's talking about things like grammar. She's talking about, you know, methodologies that they used in the oldie times, like, you know, sending somebody to bike around France for four years to write down what words people were using. (laughs) And then now how, you know, different studies of Internet language, like what are the ethics of it? And, you know, what are the methods that you use? And, you know, how do how do words spread between different groups of people in, you know, the 70s versus now? And it's all super fascinating. And I feel like your linguistics friend will obviously enjoy it because linguistics. But I think everybody in the group will find a lot of interesting things to read here. And McCullough is a super accessible writer. This is so engaging and very like it just reads so easy. And is very, I'm going to have such a case of the did you knows. I already do. <laughs> I love that. I went on a hike with my partner and I was like, and then I learned blah, 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 blah yesterday. Like it's already happening. So again, that is Because Internet by Gretchen McCullough. All right. Our next question is from Diane who says, I'm in my early 40s and most of my work life has been spent within a non-hierarchical, wow, non 
hierarchical. That's hard to say. Goodness. <laughs> An unconventional environment that was very open to messy human emotions for better and worse. Now I find myself in a fairly standard environment where professional communication and conduct is expected and open, honest sharing is done in a much more tempered manner. While I generally understand the context clues of my workplace's culture, I still don't totally get it, and I miss some of the dynamics of my previous workplace, namely the benefits of a less rigid, authoritative structure. Let's see. I'm interested in reading something that will help me understand the various healthy and successful hierarchical work culture strategies and concepts, and I would much prefer to read something that is introductory, written by someone other than a white man, and considers humanistic approaches, challenges white supremacist concepts, and or traditional capitalist workplace norms. I also need something that is fairly engrossing, as engaging nonfiction can be difficult for me, or something that is available as an audiobook. Okay, I picked Radical Candor by Kim Malone Scott, which is kind of the Book Riot workplace Bible, if we have one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very much the book that shapes our communication culture, also our weekly meeting structure. So much of the way that we do things in in our company is about this book. Now, Kim Scott is, she is a white woman, and she worked at Google and also Apple, maybe in the reverse order. I don't remember. And had, you know, some issues with, talk about a hierarchical structure, right? Like Google, these like tech bro Silicon Valley places. And was noticing that pretending like people don't have feelings in the workplace is not helpful. And she was a manager at both of these places and eventually became pretty powerful in both organizations as a manager and tried to and successfully did really change the culture of how management is done in those companies and then went off and wrote the book and, and you know, was doing her own thing now. But the the whole idea behind Radical Candor is that feelings are fine. Like you're a human person. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no way that we can go into a professional environment and pretend like we are robots. And the job of a manager, and I think why this is appropriate for you, even if you're not a manager, is that our job is to figure out where the our emotions are appropriate to share and what to do with them when other people are emoting at you or are not emoting at you and you know that they maybe should be. So, you know, she talks a lot about the idea of radical candor is that you should be giving people feedback that includes your feelings. You don't have to strip out your feeling language when you're saying, you know, when you said that in the meeting, that was hurtful, or I feel like you're ignoring me, you know, to your boss or any anything like that. Like you don't have to pretend like you don't have these emotions. And if you are in a managerial position, treating people as if their emotions aren't important isn't helpful. She talks a lot about ways to make space for people's feelings and make space for feedback in an honest and helpful way. And so she she mentions like ruinous empathy is a big concept that we talk a lot about at Book Right. Ruinous empathy being like when your manager lets you run off the rails with your feelings and doesn't ever give you helpful kind of no-nonsense feedback. So you're right that like in in most professional workplaces, how much do I feel out loud is a very hard line to walk. And when you're a manager, how much do I let people feel out loud and like how much responsibility am I supposed to take for other people's feelings is is also really kind of difficult and confusing. And I think that radical candor, even if your company isn't like a radical candory kind of place, it can still be super helpful in figuring out personally what is appropriate and not appropriate to express and then how, what to do with that when the people around you are behaving in ways that you're like, I don't, are you made of plastic? Like, where are your feelings? Like what? This, <laughs> this bananas thing over here just happened and you're just looking at me like I'm not supposed to care and I don't understand that. Side note, if you're interested in, you said that you, you wanted to read something kind of that takes on traditional capitalist workplace norms and not written by a white male. Her her newest book called Just Work, which is about justice in the workplace, is co-written with a black woman whose name I can't remember. I'll put it in the show notes. And is about that topic. So like that might be a good follow-up. So that's Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Yeah. 
I mean, that is our workplace guide, as it were. Uh, The other book that several of us here at Book Riot have read and found helpful is No Hard Feelings by Liz Foslian and Molly West Duffy. And it is, as you might guess from the title, very specifically about emotions at work. And they get into like, yes, every workplace is different. And there are sometimes these unwritten rules that you're like, am I, is this cool? Is this not cool? Like, what can I say and what can I not say? And like how oversharing can we be versus friendly, but then too friendly or not friendly enough, but professional, but then people think we're off, like we're robots or something. It's like, how do you, it is, it is a minefield and how do you navigate it? And you're gonna have feelings at work, right? Like it's not possible to not have feelings in any situation. So this digs into all of the different ways that feelings show up at work and then what different strategies are for dealing with them in a work context. They do take into account, they're both white women, but they do try to take into account racial dynamics, cultural dynamics, social dynamics of various kinds in this. Um, And they're sharing a lot of research. Uh, There's like behavioral economics stuff and psychology and like all of these different aspects uh, that inform their sort of thesis about like, yeah, how do you be true to your own feelings, but also be appropriate in the workplace when every workplace has different structures of what's appropriate and what's not? complicated. So I hope these books are helpful for you. Again, this is No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work by Liz Foslian and Molly West Duffy. All right. Our next question is from Stephanie, who says, I'm writing in search of a recommendation for a friend. She's moving to Bonn, Germany, and I'd like to gift her a book that is set in or around the area. My friend has traveled extensively, living in the U.S., East Asia, and South America. She's a dedicated yogi and educational professional. She's passionate about social justice and equity and is a champion for young females of color. Previous books she enjoyed include The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, Girl, Woman, Other, The Warmth of Other Sons, If I Had Your Face, Ties That Tether, First Comes Like, and A Night Divided. It'd be great if the book is available as an ebook. Audiobooks and graphic novels are a pass. Amanda, what did you pick for this question? Um, I picked High as the Waters Rise by Anya Kampmann, which is translated by Anne Poston. Uh, and this is set in, well, a lot of places. It's kind of like a really sad travel novel <laughs> that ends in Western Germany, like in the same region where Bonn is located. Um, and it's about a man named Wakla who is working on an oil drill uh, platform in the Atlantic Ocean. And he comes back into his cabin one night and finds that his bunkmate, who is like his best friend at this point, isn't there and has gone missing. And so they sweep the rig and they figure out that he has somehow fallen off the the rig into the ocean and is gone. And so he's totally grief stricken and like shattered and saddened. And he goes on this very Odyssean kind of trek to deal with his feelings. He ends up in like Morocco. He goes to Matias is the name of his bunkmate, his home, his hometown in, in Hungary. He ends up in Italy for a while. And then he goes back to the mining town where he grew up in Western Germany. And every time he gets to a new place, you know, like when you read the Odyssey, every time, what's his name? Odysseus. (laughs) It's in the title, Amanda. Every time Odysseus ends up in a new spot on his way home, he has this set of trials to overcome or some kind of obstacle or like an interesting character to meet. And it's the same sort of similar thing is happening with with Wakla. Every time he ends up in a new place, he meets a new and interesting person, someone who helps him parse his grief. I pick this because... 
Well, and, you know, a large part of it takes place in the region that you asked for. But also your friend's books list that she likes, like Girl, Woman, Other, The Warmth of Other Suns. These are all dealing with really modern social issues. And uh, High as the Waters Rise is very much about climate change and how people who work oil rigs and like who have these really manual, dangerous jobs pulling fossil fuels out of the earth for us. I have to suffer all of these consequences of climate change and we like just kind of don't care or ignore it or don't ever hear about it. Um, and it's also about like men's feelings, which I don't think we get many books about. I mean, mm. we get a lot of books about men, but we don't get a lot of books about men having weakness or vulnerability or dealing with sadness in a in any kind of human way. Like it's usually about them avoiding it, which is whatever. Um, and so Anya is a poet. She's a pretty famous poet and so and you can tell like the this is a really poetic kind of book it's just very homeric and i really like that so that's high as the waters rise by anya common i really wanted to find you a book set in bonn <laughs> and there are not that many it turns out and i definitely do not feel like this is a comp for the books that you mentioned that your friends enjoy but it is Hundred, it is extremely set in Bonn, so <laughs> that's why I am going with a small town in Germany by John Le Carre. As you probably know, John Le Carre is a mystery and spy novel writer, and this is a mystery spy novel set in the late 1960s in Bonn, which was the capital of West Germany, which is a thing I now know thanks to this question. And the plot is that a junior level diplomat has gone missing and has all and also a bunch of very confidential files have gone missing. And so the bureau in London dispatches Ellen Turner to find out like what has happened, has this person defected, like they they these files are super sensitive nobody can know them or see them and also nobody can know that this diplomat has disappeared so like what are we going to do and it is like so many of lacare's novels a slow burn takes a while to pick up but it's an interesting context because you know at this point in the late 60s there's you know student demonstrations um the UK is trying to figure out if they're going to be able to join the EU which is like <laughs> a weird flip from where we are right now right mm. and of course there it's very action-packed once it gets going, and there's all kinds of, you know, twisty-turny spy espionage machinations, which I do enjoy. Um, <laughs> I don't know if your friend does. But it would certainly give an interesting look into the history of Bonn, at the very least. And John Lucari was such a great writer. Um, he passed recently, last and late last year, mm -hmm. I want to say. And so, yeah, it's, you know, I do tend to recommend his books for so many reasons. And so here we are. So again, this book is called A Small Town in Germany by John Le Carre. All right. Our next question is from Sylvia, who says, I'm looking for books with queer families. There are plenty with queer characters coming out and dealing with acceptance, finding love and all that, which is great. But what I wanted is a book with LGBT parents. Lesbians would be great. Aunts, uncles, grandparents, etc. They don't even need to be the main characters. I prefer fiction. I love graphic novels, romance, fantasy, sci-fi. Wouldn't mind biographies either, but I'm not really into YA. All right, I picked a romance for you. I picked Courting the Countess by Jenny Frame, which is just a <laughs> <laughs> kind of real about it. Okay, so the main character, well, there are two, obviously, because it's a romance novel, but the main character that you meet first is Harry Knight, whose real name is Henrietta, and who is a, an archaeology professor at, ooh, Oxford's fan, some fancy school in the UK, I can't remember which. 
Um, and she becomes the Countess of Axdale when the book opens because her father has died. Her father, she did not have a good relationship with. He was a terrible dad. Her parents were like, you know, very wealthy and important or whatever and left her to kind of fend for herself as a child. So she's not got, like, there's not a lot of, lot of love lost there, but she does feel beholden to the house, the place, Axdale Hall, which is, her, you know, her family's seat. And her grandfather was very important to her and made her promise when she was younger that when she took the title, she would care for the home. So she's going home back to Axdale and has decided that she's going to refurbish it. You know, it's been long neglected, it's kind of falling apart. So she's going to bring it back to life and make it make money. Like, there's going to be tours and horses and all that kind of stuff. You know, the tourism that you do around a big English house. And so she hires Annie Brannigan, who is not personally, she hires a housekeeper using a an agency. And Annie is the person who comes. She is an amazing housekeeper, is like very well recommended and very talented and has, you know, the capability of running a house this big with all of the staff and bringing it back to life and help being helpful and all of that. And she brings her daughter with her, who is, I think, nine or 10, maybe eight, but a young kid, her daughter, Riley, she's a single mother. She brings her with her to every job that she goes to. And they're very close. So Annie and Riley show up at this giant house. Harry is like not so much with the into children, like doesn't really know what to do with her hands around a kid and doesn't know how to talk to a kid. I did not expect the kid to be there. <laughs> so like now there's a child in her home. And so she's like, no, this is going to be a no for me. She calls the agency, <laughs> asks for somebody else. And the agency is like, well, we told you, but you just like don't read your email. So I don't know what to tell you. Nah. And so she's like stuck with Annie and Riley. They don't get all along at first. But Annie kind of wears her down. She takes care of her. She also like refuses to let Harry speak to her or her daughter in any kind of disrespectful way. And the class thing rears its head a, a little bit. But you know, the, not a little bit, a lot. But this is a romance. So you know what that ends up happening. They fall for each other. They form this really great family and Harry comes around to like not only do I apparently like children I really 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 like this one this one maybe not all the other ones the other ones don't matter so much but this one that's in my house I'm like deeply into and so they get close and then the mom and Harry get close and then there you go you got yourself a little fam fam and it's really just adorable <laughs> I re I didn't realize that I liked this trope doesn't matter the gender of the character but I'm like very much into crotchety adult gets deeply into a kid. I think that's so cute. And like, look at that. See, you're just a squishy squish inside. Everyone's a squishy <laughs> squish inside. So I guess it shouldn't be that surprising. But it's just really nice. It's very heartwarming. So that's Courting the Countess by Jenny Frame. That sounds lovely. I will read that. <laughs> yeah. So I picked Weekend by Jane Eaton Hamilton, which, y'all, this book is a ride. It is so many things. It's a novel, primarily, about two <laughs> extremely messy queer couples. There's Elliot and Joe, who are women, who have been together for 16 years, and Joe has just given birth to their daughter. And then there's Ajax and Logan. Ajax is female and Logan is non-binary, and they're like a relatively new couple. And what ties them together is that Logan and Elliot are both like architects and have cottage like country summer houses on this island. Um, it's north of Vancouver, I want to say. And they are all there on the island for different reasons. 
And Joe and Elliot are, like, struggling as parents of a newborn, and their relationship is, like, they can't seem to say anything right to each other, and everything is extremely complicated. And you're in Joe's head, and she's, like, postpartum. She's extremely postpartum. So she's, like, going through it. And then Ajax and Logan are sort of in this, like, place where they're... They're trying to figure out, like, what is the next moment in their relationship and, you know, are they on the same page? And it's really, like I said, when I said it's messy, it is so messy. Like, you know that thing where because you know this other person, you know exactly where to poke them, Mm. where it hurts. Mm -hmm. And that is that happens a lot in this book. (laughs) And it is, I want to say right now, it's ultimately about queer joy. Like, it is very much about queer trauma and tragedy, but it is ultimately about queer joy in a really beautiful way. Um, But along the way, you have, like, all kinds of, you know, hopes and fears and insecurities and experiences. There's racism and transphobia. There's infertility and miscarriage. There's discussion of intimate partner violence and death by suicide. Like, there's ableism. There's just all kinds of tough stuff in here. But the way that these two couples work through it on the page felt so real and honest. And like I like I keep saying, messy. It's messy, messy, messy. But you get like multiple generations actually in two different ways of queer families of origin. Like I think so often in queer stories we get found family because families of origin are so complex and often unaccepting of queer folks. But this story has multiple generations of family of origin queer stuff in really interesting and lovely ways. And I just I just devoured this book. So I think it, you know, again, like assuming you can hang with the tough stuff, um, I think you'll really dig this one. So again, that's Weekend by Jane Eaton Hamilton. And now it is time for our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn 
more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary, you know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Alrighty. So our next question is from Catherine, who says, I'm looking for good mystery thrillers that have layered, believable main characters and surprising twists. This is my go-to genre when I hit a reading slump. But lately, I keep picking up books with one-dimensional characters, expecting plot twists, and are just overall disappointing. Books in this area I've loved are Anything by Ruth Ware, The Wife Upstairs, The Magpie, and Moonflower Murders by Anthony Horowitz. Town of French has been hit or miss for me in the past. All right. Uh, Amanda, what did you pick? I picked The Conductors by Nicole Glover, which just came out at the beginning of March. And this is a combination, like genre mashup of historical fiction, mystery thriller, and fantasy. And I am obsessed with it. So it takes place right after the end of the Civil War. And the main character's name is Hetty. And her and her husband, Benji, were conductors on the Underground Railroad before the war and then also during the war. And since the war has ended, they have moved to Philadelphia and settled there and made this like very insulated community, uh, small community comprised mostly of themselves and then people who they helped escape slavery up into and moved to Philadelphia. So it's a lot of people they know. And since the war has ended, you know, Hetty and Benji had these, since they were conductors on the Underground Railroad, very highly honed, like covert operative kind of skills. And they're also very talented magicians because in this version of alternate history, magic is a thing. And it's different depending on your race. The black people in this book have magic that's based on the stars. So it's like celestial. Every time they cast a spell, it comes in the shape of a constellation. And white people's magic is is referred to as sorcery and is based more on words and using a wand and like being annoying. But as far as I can tell, like it's they're very different functional magic systems. And black people, when they... Uh, before the war and after the war are not allowed to use their magic at all. And so it's very underground in you know, a lot of ways. So they're talented magicians. They've got all these covert skills from their time uh, on, on the Underground Railroad. And so they have become their community's like de facto police force almost. Every time somebody is murdered or there's a crime or something suspect is going on, people go to Hetty and Benji and are like, hey, could you <laughs> could you figure this out for us? And so when the book opens, they get a dead body, like somebody's knocking on their door in the middle of the night, like, hey, there's a body in the alley. And they go out and they look and it turns out to be one of their friends, Charlie, who was one of the first people that they escorted to freedom before the war. And since he's gotten to Philadelphia, he has made a lot of enemies. He's a slumlord. He's deeply in gamb- like involved in gambling debt. So like the suspect list is pretty long. But it, this one's different because this is like a member of their community. You know, this is a person who they've got personal ties with. And then as they try to solve this crime, it gets closer and closer to them personally. Um, there's also like the romantic, their relationship is so fascinating to me because they're married, but they do not, they're not in love. Like they're married and they love each other. And there's very much like a, this is my partner. This is my companion. This is my family. But there's no romantic feelings for them between each other until like three quarters of the way through the book when both characters at the same time are like, wait a minute, do I like you? Like, 
do I like my wife? I don't know what to do about that. Like they got married because it was convenient and they, you know, enjoyed each other, each other's company and wanted to spend time together. And, you know, it's just easier in that time period to be married and not have to deal with people whispering about you. But then it's like, wait, <laughs> you're actually kind of cute. Like, I don't know what to do about this. So that's pretty funny. And that's very, but that's very much like a side thing. The mystery, the murder mystery and the flashbacks to their time in the Underground Railroad, which helps you solve the mystery, are the things that, that are interesting here. So that's The Conductors by Nicole Glover. And it is the first in a series of mysteries. So there are more, more to come. All right. I love that that book is a thing, yes. by the way. Just a P.S. So P.S. Philadelphia. <laughs> BT Dub. Social justice. Yeah. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> All right. So uh, my pick for this is A Madness of Sunshine by Nalini Singh. And this is a slow burn, I will say. But, you know, I thought the characters were great. Um, and I did not guess the whodunit. So hopefully it works for you. It is set in New Zealand. And the main character, Anahara, is from a very small town and in New Zealand. And she left when she was 21. She's like, I'm getting out of here. I'm never coming back. Like, bad things have happened to me here. I never fit in. Like, bye. Bye. But eight years later, because, of course, she ends up having to come back for reasons. And the the town, Golden Cove, is like having like a little tourism bump. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty much how it was. The same people are there. The same complicated feelings exist for her. Um, and it's super, oh, it's so immersive. I like can envision this town. Uh, Singh really brings it to life. And all the small town characters are there, which is so great. And then there is Detective Will Gallagher, who's like the new police guy in town. And because he's new, he's not from there. And also there's not a lot of crime. Like, nobody really is going to tell him anything mm -hmm. ever. Because he's an outsider. Like, why would you tell? And mostly there's not a reason to. But then... One of the young women in the town goes out for a run and never comes back, and they do a missing person search uh, that rapidly turns into something much bigger. And there, uh, so Anna uh, meets Will, and like there's like some chemistry there, um, and she ends up helping out the investigation for reasons of her own. And you sort of find out more and more about their individual backstories, how they ended up in this small town. And then there is the murder mystery. It is, like I said, a slow burn, uh, but I really loved it. And I love the characters so much. The setting, like I said, it's so immersive. Um, and Singh writes a lot of suspense with romantic elements. So I feel like this is her wheelhouse, as it were. I will give content warnings for harm to animals and then violence towards women and children, including rape and domestic violence. So, you know, it's a, it's a murder mystery. Bad things happen, unfortunately. <laughs> but again, that's A Madness of Sunshine by Nalini Singh. All right. Our next question is from Alejandra, who says, I'm 31 years old and have recently been diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorder. I'm beginning treatment for it, but it has been difficult to learn that I've had it all my life and just now having to learn to cope with it as an adult. I'm looking for a book that has an adult with autistic spectrum disorder as the main character, preferably a woman. It can be fiction or nonfiction and any genre. Okay, I picked The Suicide House by Charlie Donnelly, which comes with trigger warnings for suicide, obviously. And this is a mystery thriller. It's pretty dark, I will warn you. <laughs> um, so it takes place in Indiana at a prep school called Westmont Preparatory High. And this is like a very fancy, very elite, very, you know, like 
Donna Tartish sort of prep school in Indiana. And behind the school uh, in the woods is this like abandoned boarding house that the Westmont students use as, you know, a hangout, kind of dead poet society sort of thing. But they also use it for um, this like game that they play that's a like a hazing kind of thing. And two years, but no, one year before the book opens, two students were killed there. And what makes it even more like grisly is that in the year since those two students have died, students who survived the night have gone back and died by suicide at that house. And they've arrested a teacher who has confessed, like he's written a diary, you know, like a whole thing about all these murders he committed or whatever. And so they've arrested this teacher. Um, And the case, according to the local police, is cold. I mean, it's over. But according to a true crime podcast in the book called The Suicide House, not so much. They don't think that this is that they've arrested the right person, especially since the guy who says that he committed these murders is in jail, but it's still happening. And so, you know, there's this theory that whatever is happening at that school that drives these kids out into that boarding house, whatever game they're playing or tradition they're doing or secret society thing they're involved in is still going on and somebody needs to do something about it. So Rory, who is the main character, is a forensic reconstructionist. So she and she is the character who has autism. And she is an expert in reconstructing these cold cases. That's what she does for a job. And her partner's name is Lane. And Lane is a, I think he's a psychiatrist. And together, they go through these old cold cases, try to recreate them and try to solve them. And so they are on, you know, this case. Lane hears about the case, takes Rory out to this boarding house, and then they start putting the pieces together. And then you are like with them as they solve this mystery. And yeah, like that's, that's, it's dark. Like it is, I have a, I have a problem, not a problem. I am very sensitive to like bad things happening to kids in books. It, it's usually going to put me off. But for some reason, murder mysteries tend to not be the case there because I know that probably at the end, whoever has done the bad thing is going to get it, you know, like is going to get what's coming to them because that's like how the genre usually works. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, not so much with this one, but I will say that this is the second book in a series. Rory and Lane have uh, another, you know, a bo- another one before this, but the author purposely wrote them as standalones, so like very Agatha Christie in that way, where you can just pick one up and you don't have to have read the, the other ones. But I just, you know, want to put that out there. If you're a completionist, go read book one first. But this is The Suicide House by Charlie Donnelly. All right. I picked a romance for you. It is The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. And I am so excited for you slash everyone to read this book if you haven't already. Uh, I think we've talked about it before on this show, but it's now is a good time to bring it back. So there are it is a romance. The two main characters are both Asian-Americans. Stella Lane is our heroine and she is autistic and she loves math she is a like is it computer engineer she designs algorithms uh, in retail situations so like and that is obviously a very lucrative profession um so she's very successful commercially and you know career wise but she has not had much success in the dating department uh she's 30 and like her parents are sort of you know on her back about it. And she's also like, I guess I should probably learn how to do this thing. Like, this is, you know, I I don't know. I should figure this out. So 
she but she she's not like super comfortable with just going out and dating. So she decides instead that she's going to get a practice boyfriend and hires an escort to do that thing. So Michael is our hero and he is an escort uh, and he like she doesn't want to tell him all of her own personal details for various reasons. But he actually has experience with neurodiversity in his own family and is like very accepting of Stella being like, I don't like this and don't touch me here. And also like none of this. And, you know, (laughs) she's got a lot of she has a lot of preferences because of the way certain sensations and, you know, feelings make her react. And he's like, all right, uh, cool. Like, let's do this thing. And of course, you know, they catch feelings. Things get complicated. Stella really has questions about her own ability to be in a relationship. And it's just so sweet and lovely to watch them figure out their stuff with each other. And, you know, romance. So happy ending. Delightful. It's delightful. And then I will also say there's an author's note. I'm pretty sure it's in this one that uh, the author talks about her own diagnosis as an adult with autism spectrum disorder that might you might also find very relatable. So, again, this is The Kiss Quotient by Helen Huang. All right. Our last question is from Stephanie, another Stephanie, who says, in terms of my reading tastes, I gravitate towards books that give readers what they need, not what they want. More specifically, I enjoy books with unsatisfactory endings because they're the ones that resonate with me the most. I often come away with an important lesson that leaves me deep in thought for days. I also appreciate a good redemption arc because I like my characters to have layers to their personality and live between shades of gray. They're the ones I develop the strongest emotional connections with. Amanda, what did you pick? I picked the book with the most unsatisfying ending that I have read (laughs) in the past few years. Um, It's called What's Left of Me is Yours. It's by Stephanie Scott. And it takes place in Japan, where there is this kind of covert, secret, not so secret industry that has sprung up, uh, the name of which translates into Breaker Upper, wherein a spouse can hire a Breaker Upper uh, to seduce their spouse so that they have the upper hand in divorce proceedings. So like, I want to divorce my wife. I hire this guy to go seduce her, take pictures of it, so that when I file for divorce, which I already intended to do, I can say that it was all her fault. And so uh, Sato is the name of the husband here, hires Kataro to have an affair with his wife. His wife's name is Rina. And so he thinks, you know, this will be easy. She's lonely. He can go do this thing with her, and then I can get out of this marriage. The wrinkle is that Rina and Kataro actually fall for each other, and Kataro like, keeps pushing off taking the pictures and providing the evidence, and the relationship gets more and more complicated. Rina ends up dead, and Kataro ends up in jail for her murder. Not the husband, the other guy. And so it's told mostly from the perspective of their daughter, uh, Sumiko, there their being Sato and Rina, who remembers this man coming into her mother's life and remembers... Her mother not being there anymore. She's raised by her grandfather, not her father. So she she's never really been told. Like she knows that the that somebody did something bad to her mom and that he's in jail. And she's never gotten any closure or been told like the circumstances of the situation or what caused her mother to be murdered or if this guy, if anyone thinks that he actually did it. Like she just has no information because she's raised very much in a like it was the past. Don't worry about it. Move on. And now she's an adult and she's about to become a lawyer and. Kataro is about to get out of jail. Like he served his sentence. 
and is trying to contact her and because he remembers her. And so there, she just is like, what to do? You know, no one will answer her questions. So she goes, she like uses her newfound lawyer credentials to dig up this case and try and find out what actually happened to her mom or between her mom and this man who's about to get out of jail who says that he, you know, has a, like affectionate memories of her and like he's in jail for killing her mother. So please don't have affectionate memories of me. Like, no, thank you. Um, and so you just like, it's fla- it's flashbacks. It's so interesting because you're you're getting this really complicated, contentious relationship that may or may not have ended in a really violent act from the perspective of a girl who at the time was like eight. And then from her perspective as an adult looking back on that. And it's just very whiplashy and weird and confusing, but also like engrossing and fascinating and strange and then like i can't say anything else because the ending that's unsatisfying i can't even like i can't tell you what it is or why it's unsatisfying if you look if you read this book please email us (laughs) and tell me what you thought of the ending because i was like you've got to be kidding me (laughs) it's not unsatisfying in the way that it's bad it's just like that is not what i thought was going to happen and the, the you know you say that you like the unsatisfying endings because they stick with you and leave you thinking about them a long time for forever. Still, I think about the ending of that book and I'm like, am, is it was it bad to me or unsatisfying to me because I'm such an American and like I'm reading this book about a <laughs> Japanese and I expect things to be wrapped up in like this neat kind of, you know, like I have no patience. I have no American readers don't like sloppy endings. Like, like they don't like loose ends or things not being tied up like they want something that's satisfying and you don't get that here. And so I was very like, am I just being like weird and western and gross about that and anyway that's the thing that i thought about forever i still don't know the answer so that's what's left of me of you is yours by stephanie scott so i the first book i thought of for this very interesting question is the one that i ended up going with it's the crossing by jason mott and this book is like the most moving target of a book and i actually think that the publisher description does not do it any favors because they sort of make it sound like it's going to be this action-packed dystopian thriller. And that is not what this book is. It is sort of like a meandering, gauzy, near-future story about identity and being a sibling and all of the complicated you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad baggage that comes along with being a sibling. It's about twins, Virginia and Tommy. They are orphans. They were uh, orphaned at the age of five. They've been in the foster care system. They are now 17. And the world, I mean, this is like potentially, you know, you don't want to read this book right now, but uh, there has been a deadly contagion. There's a devastating world war happening. Tommy is drafted for the war. And they are like, uh, you know, Virginia's like, I don't want you to go die in this war that like we're not even fans of. But also like the world is falling apart all over the place. Um, And they're also obsessed with space exploration and NASA. And there is going to be this launch. And so they like set out on the road, sort of, to get to this launch. But, like, everything is way more complicated than that. It's extremely complicated. And there are so many moments where I was like, oh, dang, like, new layers are revealed to these characters' personalities and relationships with both each other and then other people in their lives. And it's just like, when I think about it, I'm like, what even happened in that book? Like, but it's it made such an impression on me. So it's a it's an odd book to try to recommend because I like don't have 
an elevator pitch for it, aside from that it is a moving target of a book that is not at all sort of what the description makes it sound like. So it sounds, though, like that might appeal to you. (laughs) So here we are. Again, that's The Crossing by Jason Mott. And that is the end of our show today. Hooray! Thank you all for your questions. Thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink, for making us sound great. And thank you all for listening, whether or not you sent in a question. We super appreciate you. If you would like more book recommendations, we have lots of those over at bookriot.com. You can also find our other podcasts. We have many uh, at bookriot.com slash listen. There are genre podcasts and newsy podcasts and all kinds of things if you need more things for your ears. And if you are so inclined, we would love for you to leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show and we super appreciate the feedback. Thank you to our sponsors for making the show possible. And in between shows, you can find us on social media. Amanda, where are you? I am on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I am also mostly on Instagram these days at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will talk to you next time. <laughs>